0: I realize that it's probably a little bit more fun to hear Christmas messages that are, are, are more oriented around the theme of the Advent. Um, it probably is a little bit easier to follow if you listen like I do, which is I have a habit of tuning in, thinking about something, tuning back in, thinking about something. Uh, it's probably a little easier to follow if if the guy preaching the Advent series just does what's familiar, but I don't I don't know uh, without being tried or campy how to do that. Um, I, I even brought this up with a few people. Like this is my third Advent series for this congregation, and uh, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I got a couple of people that suggested I just go back and do the first one. Um, nobody would remember it. And I just can't in good conscience do that, nor do my notes generally make sense to me more than a few months out. I'll look at it and go, I have no idea what I was prompting myself to say there. But anyway, so in working through this passage from, what was it, five? Yeah, from five through 80 of Luke 1 over the last two, and now this will be our third week, my objective has been to orient us in the gospel that's being proclaimed through this narrative and help us to make the necessary adjustments in not just the way that we think, but the the direction that we are pointed in the way that we live our lives so that we might do it in view of the fact that God promised thousands of years ago to send a savior. And then every year around this time, which is most certainly not when Jesus was born, but every year around this time, we choose to remember that and observe it. Uh, There are practical things we can take away from these scriptures other than the, uh, the sentimental story of Jesus's birth. So I appreciate you bearing with me. It's not that I'm not doing this out of some sense of elitist uh you know reformed pastor nonsense. It's just it works best for me. So thank you. Uh and as always for the privilege of, of preaching anyway. Amen. It's a privilege, I mean it is. Alright, so Luke one forty six <clears throat> Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Uh, and, and then we'll leap off into what the Catholics, uh, because of the Latin Vulgate, call the Magnificat, or uh, what I, as a young man, hilariously entitled Mary's Magnificent Cat. Um, what's happening here is you, you, you have Mary responding to Elizabeth's encouragement that it's a good thing that you believed what was said to you by God uh, because you have a lot of reasons not to believe what was said to you by God just in the culture around you. So for uh, those of you who think that an angel showing up would be all you need to be convinced, uh, Zechariah came before us to show that that's not the case. And uh, Jesus himself in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man says that if I sent Moses or an angel to your relatives to proclaim the gospel, they still wouldn't believe. If Moses and the prophets isn't enough for them to believe, nothing else is going to make them believe. So. Elizabeth rightly identifies that it's a good thing that Mary believed, and we should rightly identify that it's a good thing that if we have believed the gospel, that we have believed the gospel and recognize that that is a work of God, not a work of our superior intellect, right? So Mary does the right thing, and in response to Elizabeth's, Oh, it's good that you believed. How blessed are you who believed? She says, you know what? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. the The possessive pronouns—is that even a thing? I think it is. Uh, here, tell you something else very important. <clears throat> And this is easier to illustrate in our culture than it's probably ever been. I think starting sometime in the 1930s or 40s with the advent of uh, commercial radio, which quickly became commercial television, our culture began to engage in kind of this celebrity worship thing in a whole new and magnified way that we had never done it before. Um, and, And what I believe has been happening, this is just my personal opinion, since the 90s, Uh, when I was a teenager is we stopped really actually adoring celebrities but just started imitating what we had seen the generation before us do Uh, and then along came the internet and social media, and this gave us a whole new way to know celebrities and popular people or politicians. And and you you can see in the way that the culture conducts itself toward celebrities and pop stars and politicians, you can see <clears throat> that there's a brokenness in our in our like m- m- cultural. Um, mentality and the brokenness works like this. We have reached the conclusion that knowing about somebody is the same as knowing them. And what Mary says here is my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. You cannot rejoice like this and your soul cannot magnify like this in someone you know about. You must know the Lord for yourself. You must know him in a saving way. It's not enough to know about him. And this is why I'm tempted to steer away from Advent messages. Because it's familiar and it gives people a sentimental feeling to hear the Christmas story. And it gives them a false sense that they've actually believed something they haven't believed. Because they don't really have their own relationship with Jesus Christ. They just have feelings about Jesus Christ. Huge difference. 48. Whatever, don't be quiet or anything. That was catty. Uh, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, He has sent away empty. The principle at work here, and uh, this should come as no shock to anybody if you were paying attention as this has been read to you now twice this morning. The principle at work here is that God dispenses mercy and grace to the humble and he humbles those who think they need no mercy and grace. The question is, on that second piece, whether he does it in this life Or when this life is over. But he humbles those who think that they need no mercy and grace. So we're going to look at a couple of passages. And whether or not we look at three passages or 16 passages will depend on how much I feel like you're all paying attention. Okay, Uh, We're going to start though in 2 Samuel 22. It won't be up on the screen. And if you don't turn there, I'll know you're not paying attention. And then I'm just going to stretch this thing out even more. So if you're just sitting there with your hands folded, staring at the ground right now, for instance, you're dragging this out for everybody. Second Samuel 22, verse 28. You save a humble people but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. This is in the middle of a a psalm that makes its appearance in the narrative story of David. This is later on in his life when he's had the experience of being haughty and being brought down and made low and having a broken and contrite heart. And he's had the experience of being humble and having the Lord exalt him save him look at psalm 55 18 and 19 psalm 55:18 says he redeems my soul in safety from the battle that i wage for many are arrayed against me God will give ear and humble them. He who is enthroned from of old, Selah, because they do not change and do not fear God. So Mary notes that God has looked upon her in her humility and blessed her. And I think, I would assume you think this too, I see Mary noting that God has looked on her humility or her humble circumstances and he has blessed her and I think I want that too. I think I want that too. Not to be pregnant, you know, at the age that she was, but for God to bless me for my humility. So, what do we have to do? Well, we got to stop and talk about humility because, uh, you know, I I can poll my household and ask them what they think words mean, and uh, sometimes I'm pleasantly surprised. Sometimes I'm uh, disappointed because I think, and this is, you know, probably a sign of just how humble I am. I think I'm a pretty great teacher and so when people in my own household don't know things that I feel like I've taught them it's very humbling right we have to stop and talk about it for that reason even if we've been over this before and as I go along you're going to begin to think we've been over this before he needs to find some new material hit the pause button because if I quiz you right now, if I bring you up here and give you a mic and go, let's, talk, let's have a conversation in front of everybody about humility and I'm going to find out how much you remember that I've taught you about it, I'm guessing you would prefer I review first. Right? So as we turn to Matthew 15 and you start thinking, we've been here before, just, just remember, quizzes are always a possibility. Matthew 15 this is not a parable, it's an actual event that happened. Verse 21. <clears throat> Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon." But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master 's table. Then Jesus answered her, "O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire." and her daughter was healed instantly. I look at at mary 's response to her situation, her circumstances, and you see it in this poem, this song that she sings, right? She says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. And I think I want to be able to sing that too. I don't want to just know about these things. I want to know these things From living them, from having the experience of God, that He really does lift up the humble and He really does oppose the proud. And the way that I want to have that experience is I want to be one of the humble people that He blesses, right? So then I go, all right, what does that mean? What's humility look like? And um, our assumption is, That the dictionary definition of humility or humble will be the most helpful way we can find that out. And what the dictionary definition says, it portrays humility as this kind of weak, subservient, meek, never assertive person. In fact, it says not assertive in the dictionary definition. Well, Jesus was pretty humble and he was pretty assertive. Right? So I, I disagree with, I understand what the dictionary is doing, but I don't think that's the best interpretation of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about humility. So I always start here. A good place to think of humility rather than just going, it's not being proud. Okay, perfect. A better place to start is humility is thinking less of yourself. But we got to reorganize the words a little bit there or you might get confused and you end up doing this scraping humility, asceticism thing, right? So humility is thinking of yourself less. Start there. Does that make sense? Come on. Emily can't be the only one. Does that make sense? Think of yourself with, with infrequency. Start there. Thinking lower thoughts of yourself at the end of the day is still thinking of yourself, right? So potentially a dangerous thing to do. The Bible makes it pretty clear that God is interested in those with hearts that are oriented away from themselves. And here's what you'll find. I'm just going to rip through some scripture verses and I want you to notice a theme. The reality is that the more you orient your thoughts and the intentions and affections of your heart outward instead of inward, generally, the more emotionally, spiritually, mentally healthy you will be. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 22, 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And I do not believe we're talking about, uh, you know, jewels and diamonds and a Overflowing checking account. There are riches that come with humility that are different than those riches. James 4, 6 says he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Spiritual health is about understanding what I possess in my in my being being a child of God? What do I have? What is the inheritance? What is the reward for me right now because I belong to Jesus Christ? I want to understand what the reward is. Well, the reward is right now I live and move and have my being in the view of God and he looks upon me and sees rather than the worst things about me chooses to view me as robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is grace and mercy, right? So I act not as somebody who has earned the favor of God through my own personal righteousness, but as somebody who has received the favor of God through his graciousness. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. You, you humble yourself before the Lord, and He will raise you up. He will lift you up. Micah six eight. He's told you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you: do justice, love kindness, or mercy, and walk humbly with your God. All right, just don't don't. Disconnect. Don't go on a train ride or a balloon ride in your mind right now. Stay with me because if we can get a grip on this, we'll be really helped spiritually, emotionally, mentally. You will be healthier if you can get a hold of these things. 2 Chronicles 7 14. If my people who are, I keep crossing my eyes to read this. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, you already quit listening, let me start over. If my people who are called by my name, this is God talking, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land." I don't know about you, and I'm not up here to name it and claim it or whatever, but I would very much like for God to heal our land. Would love for that to happen. I hope you're not on Twitter, but if you are, you, like me, got treated to the reality of what's going on in our government right now, and that includes acts that are breathtakingly grotesque happening in Senate hearing chambers when, you know, they're not in there having Senate hearings. I'm not going to say anything else about it. Those of you who saw it, saw it. I would love for God to heal this land because what I see us doing is pressing the accelerator as we approach the precipice of no hope, judgment, and wrath on this country for evil. So I read the Old Testament and it says things like this, if my people who are called by my name, who's that? Who are his people who are called by his name? Folks, that's us. I'm not saying it's everybody in this room, but it's many of the people in this room. are people who, who have been called by God Christians, right? We believe that we belong to Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, and I know it's Old Testament promise, it has to do with Israel. I'm not trying to misapply it or stretch it, you know, and and name it and claim it. I'm just saying, he doesn't say if all the people in the land would would repent. He says, if the people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal the land. Seems to me that if just the church, who Peter says it's time for judgment to begin with, it seems to me if just the church would get serious about believing the gospel, God would probably begin to pour out blessing on this country. Probably. Can't guarantee it. It just looks like it to me. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. This is for you. So we've gone from corporate to now to individual. All right. This is for you. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I've said this uh, uh, a hundred times, and I've said it to myself a thousand times. The reason that you are anxious, the beginning of your anxiety is always you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Always. So Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And you can say, "I don't. I think I'm worthless." You're still thinking of yourself. You need to orient the thoughts of your heart outward. Think of someone else. Think of doing something for someone else. Proverbs 18:12 before destruction a man's heart is arrogant, but humility comes before honor. Oh, uh, You don't have to be very old to have lived this. Can I get an amen? Yeah, the more uh, I was puffed up, especially, I mean, it just, it stops as you get older because you can't find as many reasons to be puffed up as you get older. But when you're young, man, pride goes before the fall. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. So now we're going to move into what does it look like to exercise these principles, Okay. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Look, I have an anger problem. Uh, I have a, a language problem. I have a attitude problem. I have a thinking more highly of myself than I ought to problem. Just ask my wife and kids. You hear me? Okay, so that's not me saying, and therefore I'm absolved of responsibility because I already admitted it. Nope, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I have these problems. I'm not nearly as patient, long-suffering, loving, kind, gentle, turning away wrath with kindness as I should be because I do a lot of what I do from selfish ambition and empty conceit. Do you know how you begin to do things from from, uh, selfish ambition and conceit? You know how? You want to know how? Does anybody want to know how? Just stop trying to do the opposite. That's all it takes. Just quit being diligent to guard your heart against these things and let it run on its own. And this is where it will go. Selfish ambition and conceit. But in humility, rather than that, Count others as more significant than yourselves. If your household, if just in your home, everybody in the house was like, no, let me. No, no, I insist, let me. How much better would things be there? Come on. No, mom, let me clean the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, honey, let me do the laundry, right? Oh, let me go change the oil, Dad. No thanks. But you see how the attitude would be so helpful for peace and enjoyment. Like it would bring balance to the force in the the home, wouldn't it? Now take that and move it out to the church. What if we were like that at church? Take it and move it out. What if we could be like that in the workplace? That would be bananas, wouldn't it? If it worked, people were like, no, no, let me. <sighs> Instead, they're like, no, no, I'll let you. <laughs> let each of you look not only to his own interests, but <clears throat> also to the interests of others. Do you see? Getting the, getting the thoughts of my heart oriented outward. Romans twelve three for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Romans twelve sixteen live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Oh, let me tell you, you're going to get it right at some point during the work week or the at-home week or the whatever portion of your life, it's going to happen. You're going to be confronted with something. Uh, It's going to be a surprise. You weren't going to be expecting it. You definitely won't have practiced for it in the shower. And here it will come, this situation, and you're going to nail it. Eventually, it's going to happen. And the minute you nail it, you're going to go, of course I did. I expect to nail it forthwith. Because you're wise in your own sight. And all it takes is an ounce of success. Now what happens when you start living like that is living in harmony with one another goes out the window. And uh, associating with the lowly goes out the window. You start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. Luke 14, 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. That promise appears multiple times throughout the scripture. It's it's just this is God telling you, look, I would love it if you would flourish. So I've given commandments and directives and you know ideas about how you might want to live your life. And here's one the more arrogant you are, the more you're going to suffer. And the more humble you are, the more I'm gonna lift you up. But what do we do? Oh that's all right, God, I've got it. Let me lift myself up. 1 Corinthians 1, this is the last verse. Well, not of the morning, but of this subject. 28 and 29, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Now, Mary's song is overflowing with this truth. It's overflowing with the truth that it is humility, that most encourages God to use you. Not saying he changes his decree or his will or his plan. I am saying that your experience of God will be greatest when you approach life with the most humility. So, 54 Luke 1. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. This is important, right? Because if we don't get this, if we don't get 54 and 55, uh, we'll think that God's benevolence is conditioned on our obedience. The kindness that he shows to you is the result of his love not your good behavior. Well, you just got done talking for half an hour about humility leading to the pleasure of God. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Practically speaking, that's true. But here's the, the thing that God says about himself. In Second uh, 2 Timothy 2.13, the Holy Spirit tells you that if we're faithless, He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? That means that his faithfulness does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. God's faithful because he's like, Why would I not be just because you're not? I'm going to continue to be who I am. In James 1.17, the Holy Spirit says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. What does that mean? That means that the enjoyment of God's grace is not triggered by me being good. Like, his grace doesn't flow because I'm well-behaved. God is not affected to be more gracious to me because I've been better. And I screwed up because the first thing that I said is the opposite of what I meant to say. Delete it from your minds. All of you are like, ooh, I should have been paying attention. Okay. I'm going to start over. I'm going to do this the right way. The kindness that God shows to you is the result of his steadfast love, not your obedience. Okay? However, the enjoyment of his steadfast love does not come apart from your obedience. In Deuteronomy 7 9, it says, Know therefore that the Lord your God. Oh, so much better. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. In John fourteen fifteen, Jesus says it like this, very simply. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Any situation you find yourself in will be interpreted by you through the lens of your relationship to your creator. Mm. Any situation you find yourself in will be interpreted by you through the lens of your immediate relationship with your creator. Which means, as you enter into different situations in your life, how you view the situation will change depending on whether you walked into that situation in fellowship with God or you walked into that situation just in some wicked sin and depravity. You didn't change God. And you didn't change his steadfast love. But you sure changed your own heart and your own mind and the way that you're capable of evaluating things. I'm trying not to be specific lest I distract you from what the Holy Spirit is trying to get you to think about right now. I don't want to give you examples so you don't go, ooh, I would never thought of that evil. If you're walking in disobedience, fine, I'll do it. But I'm going to do it I'm going to use Mary, and I'm going to stretch us a little bit. Mary isn't pregnant because she fornicated. Right? But she is pregnant. And a young woman who is pregnant outside of marriage for more typical reasons than Mary will likely see a different attribute in her creator than the one Mary is seeing in her creator. If Mary had fornicated and then an angel showed up and went, you're going to bear the Son of God. That's different news now. She might be hallucinating. She might be schizophrenic. She might have a demon. She hadn't been. And an angel shows up and says, you're going to bear the Savior, the Messiah. Same news. Feels a lot different. So if you're, if you're walking with God the best that you can, and it, it ain't great, we all know that, right? None of us are like, I am, James, I'm glad that you mentioned it. You're doing the best you can. I believe, right? Help my unbelief. So you're walking with God, and you're gonna walk with him tomorrow into the kitchen, and you're gonna walk with him into some chores around the house or you're going to walk with him to school or you're going to walk with him to work or you're going to walk with him in your marriage like you're going to walk into things that are not preferable are are not the best they're not what you would pick right circumstances that are like challenging and I'm telling you it's not the fact that that uh, an angel showed up that enables Mary to sing this song and magnify God. It's the fact that there was no doubt in her mind what the cause of her pregnancy was. So, when you get to work and things, you know, it sucks city, whether or not you can glorify God and have a good attitude will depend a great deal on how you've been walking with Him leading up to those moments at work. You could look at a difficult situation at work and go, man, God is good. I'm being stretched today. Or you can look at a difficult situation at work and go, oh, I'm being judged today. And the only thing that's different about that is you. God is the same. His steadfast love is the same. All right, I beat that horse to death, right? So Mary remained with Elizabeth, verse 56, about three months and returned to her home. Time came for Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown mercy toward her and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered and said, nope, he shall be called John. And they were like, hmm, Let's ask his dad. They made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name as John. They all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We don't know how Zechariah communicated the message uh, that he heard from Gabriel to his wife. Maybe he used the tablet referenced here. Um, But here's a remarkable thing, right? Whatever the manner that Zechariah used to communicate what he had heard from Gabriel to Elizabeth, whatever the method that he used to do that, say amen if you agree with this it was not as cool as the method God used to communicate it to Zechariah. Okay? And yet, Elizabeth is willing to believe from her mute husband what he was at first unwilling to believe from the angel. Um, Men, not that we need to overdo it, right? But bless God for wives who are full of faith when we are full of doubt. And... I'm so thankful that this little detail about Elizabeth is in here because she, the social pressure that she's up against in that moment, some of those guys are going, oh, sure, yeah, because your husband can't talk. You think you're just going to name your kid whatever you want? Not in our culture, woman. Anyway, good for her. And then, and then the, the confirmation. I think Zechariah's nine months of silence. You call it what you want. Like, okay, yeah, he didn't believe. He was like, "Mm, how am I gonna know this? And Gabriel's like, are you kidding me? I'm Gabriel. That's how you're gonna know. Here's how you're gonna know it. You're gonna be silent for nine months. That was, it looks to us, like from a human perspective, it looks like this is just God responding to Zechariah, doesn't it? Like if Zechariah had been like, awesome, thanks, he would have been fine. He could have gone and talked for the next nine months. That's not the case. All of this is happening according to the plan of foreknowledge and predestination and sovereign understanding of God. I believe Zechariah's nine months of silence depicts something equivalent to the 400 years of God's silence from the death of the last prophet to this moment. And when his mouth is opened, it paints a vivid picture of the fact that God is speaking again to his people. And he's going to do it through this little baby who will be the forebearer of Jesus, proclaiming the arrival of the promised Messiah. So as we roll through these last few verses here, 68, I mean, okay, 67, father, his, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, I'm just going to point out to you, Uh, what the promise is by looking at what Zechariah expects. I want you to see what the promise is by looking at what Zechariah expects. You with me? We're so close to done. So 68, what's the promise? Redemption. By the condescension and presence of God with his creatures. Uh, John is not Jesus We get that, but God is so merciful that he's like, you know what? It's not enough that I'm going to make the God man and, and it's not enough that he's going to walk in perfect obedience and heal people and help people and bless people and teach them how to love one another. That's not enough. I'm going to have him be introduced to the the whole world by a, a not God man, by just a man man, just, just this. This fellow named John who's kind of crazy and he's going to eat weird stuff and live in the wild until it comes time for him to be the forerunner for my son. I'm going to use sinners through my whole plan of redemption. And so Zechariah, recognizing this, says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. God doesn't save us from a distance. Sorry, Bette Midler. 69. What's the promise? Salvation from sin. Not sin generally. Yours. And, and maybe yours is really gross and I don't ever want to hear about it. Maybe it is. Maybe mine is too. Super gross and you don't ever want to know about it. But th- this is so important. Your own sin can be Forgiven and you can be redeemed from it because of the effectiveness of the work of Jesus Christ. God didn't send a decent fellow to show you the way to behave. He sent his only son to die to redeem you from your sin. That's what this story is about. 60, uh, well we'll skip a couple verses, 71 salvation, the promises for salvation from the threat and terror of enemies. The worst thing anybody can do to me is torture me and kill me. That's the worst thing anybody can do to me. They cannot cast my soul into hell for eternity. That can never happen. 72 and 73, what's the promise We already said it, mercy from God because he's faithful to his own promises. 74 and 75, what's the promise? The privilege of serving the one who made me, not because I'm terrified of him, but because I'm convinced he is for me. Let me say that again. The promise in 74 and 75, the privilege of serving the one who made me Not because I'm terrified of him, but because I'm convinced that he is for me. He loves me. 77, the promise is forgiveness of sins. 78, tender mercy and the light cast by the embodiment of truth. Usually, when we flip on the lights, the roaches flee. I don't have roaches in my house. It's an illustration, right? We flip on the lights to reveal, wow, what's going on in here? And God flips on the light so that he can show mercy. The light of his son shines so that he can show mercy. And you know, the darkness doesn't comprehend it. 79. While that light is shining in dark places, it's guiding us to peace. Let me pray.